Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. On Commons People this week, Boris blunders again. Uh, uh, but uh, it's, it's, uh, it's six in, in, in a home or six in in hospitality, but uh, as I understand it, not six outside. Brexit turns nasty. The Commission has decided to send a letter of formal notice to the UK government. This is the first step in an infringement procedure. And Priti Patel makes waves. Apparently, the Home Secretary uh, wanted to look at the possibility of putting asylum seekers 4,000 miles away on a bit of a volcanic rock. Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh and joining me this week is Rachel Wearmouth. Hi Arj. Hi Rachel. We've got the Labour former advisor Matthew McGregor. Hi Arj. Hiya. And we've got the Tory former special advisor Salma Shah. Hey Arj. Hi. Just to say Paul Paul isn't here this week because he's off interviewing Keir Starmer, which you'll be able to read on the pages of HuffPost very soon. Very exciting. Uh, But let's get on with the podcast. Well, it's been another difficult week for Boris Johnson on coronavirus after he was forced to apologise for not knowing his own rules for the local lockdown he was imposing on the North East. The Prime Minister was also forced to climb down in a battle with dozens of Tory rebels, eventually agreeing that any decision on another national lockdown should be put to a Commons vote. Finally, we got a press conference alongside Chris Whitty and Sir Patrick Vallance in which the PM expressed some hope that the virus could be contained in local hotspots, but he was forced to quickly backtrack. Let's listen. I realise there is a slight danger of, uh, of, of, of people getting the, the wrong message from, uh, from this in the sense that, you know, yes, of course, and you're, you're right to pick this up, Chris, yes, of course, uh, it is more acute in these, uh, in these particular local areas, but it is vital to stress that this remains a, a national threat and, and a national challenge, and we all have to, uh, to fight it together. And you, we can't just uh, expect it to be solved, uh, you know, in the parts of the country which we, uh, you know, think are particularly affected. It's, it's down, to, down to all of us. Uh, Rachel, is a national lockdown becoming inevitable? It's not entirely clear. You know, we know that he, Boris Johnson definitely doesn't want a, a second national lockdown. You know, he wants everyone to follow the rules, Take, so we can take a kind of middle road, middle road that keeps the economy moving, keeps kids at school, um, because for obvious reasons, a second national lockdown is not a good thing. Um, it might drive down the, the virus, but the economic damage is huge. The impact on other health services, particularly cancer services, is massive. Um, you know, we know we know that domestic abuse has potentially gone up, um, and he has another problem in that politically his backbenchers would be a lot of his backbenchers at least would be very much against a second national lockdown um but then on the other hand we've got um just the the facts of the science you know we we know that the r rate is still between 1.2 and 1.5 and obviously it's it, the pandemic's growing at anything over one and um, there's a study out today which has some optimism that says it it could be around 1.1 but that's still above one um and we had just the sort of pretty stark warnings from the you know the, the two boffins yesterday 
um, Patrick Balance and Chris 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 Whiffy. Chris Whiffy, Chris Whiffy. <laughs> Freudian slip. <laughs> um, so, you know, um, so Patrick Valance said, you know, it's 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 worse in certain areas, but um, there's evidence of it of the virus virus spreading everywhere. Um, and Chris Whitty um, said that the, the, there may be a small number of deaths at the moment, but this, none of the figures we're seeing should reassure us that we won't be. And his words were in relatively short order in quite difficult places. So we're obviously in a, a very dicey position. Yeah, Salma, Boris Johnson seems a bit all over the place at the moment. Why do you think that is? Is he a bit trapped? I think the difficulty here is that it's not something that you can govern very easily. So you're in this situation where, you know, you have to listen to the independent scientific advice. And, you know, let's not forget that we all got terribly excited when we got the scientists out the first time. But now you need to balance it against the politics a bit more. So before, when we, I mean, we still don't know a lot about the virus, but when we really didn't know a lot about the virus back in March, you know, having taken drastic action because you needed that insurance felt sensible. Now the trade-off is a bit more apparent because people are losing their jobs and, um, you know, businesses are going under. So the effects of a lockdown are a lot more real. But Boris cannot ignore what the scientists are saying. So if it seems that he's all over the place, you know, he's got this sort of, you know, we had this week, this announcement on skills. So this was trying to crow back, bar that into a situation where it just sort of loses all its sort of pertinence and its, its relevance um, is probably why he uh, comes across as a bit all at sea, because this is not an easy decision. He can't ignore the scientists. He can't ignore the economic reality. He's trying to own the agenda a little bit, um, but he he's not in control of, of the situation. Yeah, sometimes it seems like he's he's simply not up to speed, though. It, it's been mentioned to me that he might be not as close to the centre of power in the government that, that we think, um, with Cummings moving all his spats to 70 Whitehall and so on. Do you think... Do you, do you recognise any of that, Salma? No, I think that's too simplistic. I've, I've always felt that kind of like, you know, even if you've got sort of a mood move of special advisors, actually the problem will be that the, the special advisors who have moved out are moving away from the centre of power. And I think it's far too simplistic to suggest that one advisor is actually the person that, that's totally in charge. Um, and like makes all the decisions. I don't think it's possible for that to happen. And just by the nature of kind of like the centre and how things shift and, you know, who's important and who's got that skill set, it means that, you know, there is more of a balance than I think people think um, on the inside. And like ultimately the civil servants can only speak to uh, the minister's authority not you know what's there in terms of influence from a special advisor so i'm very skeptical about that actually no fair enough uh, matthew labor's so far been pretty supportive of the broad approach that the government's taking while criticizing the government for failing to meet its own targets but given how things are going is there room for labor to maybe set out an alternative well i think one of the things that labor wants to do and should do is to set out an alternative uh, government. I mean, that's one of the things that oppositions need to to do is to present themselves as a, a government in waiting. And on an issue like this, where it's not necessarily big P political, it's not necessarily huge ideological uh, differences. Um, they are trying to highlight 
uh, and pressure the government over issues of of competence. You know, I I was recently worrying that I didn't really think I felt like I understood what the the rules were myself in trying to work out what I was doing with my family and plan for Christmas and everything else. But I'm an idiot and Boris is supposed to be the prime minister. So, you know, I did kind of feel a bit better about myself that he doesn't know either. But ultimately, that's that's a worry. But the issue isn't that one off slip last week. It's a pattern over time. And it's not, you know, a lot of people trace this back to the uh, Barnard Castle incident. But you know, it's not as noticed now, but the week before, the Wednesday before that happened, it kicked off, the government uh, trailed a speech in which led to a load of front page headlines about Freedom Day. And there's been a lot of uh, miscommunication and um, uh, uh, misunderstanding. It, it, you know, people aren't paying very, very, very close attention to every single line that's uttered in a press conference, as shocking as it might be for us to, to know that. It's difficult to communicate this stuff, and they're, they're getting in their own way. You know, one of the most underrated qualities in politics is competence, and the government is not demonstrating that. It's for Labour, as they're trying to do, to highlight that over and over again, both as a way of putting pressure on government to govern better, but also to present themselves as a, a ready and waiting uh, alternative. Uh, Salma, what do you make of that idea of, of miscommunication or maybe uh, mixed messages? You, is, is that indicative of a split cabinet and a split Conservative Party, do you think? No, I don't think it's that, I have to say, because um, I think it's more not understanding the levers of communication that you have at your disposal. So, yes, it does go back to a question of competence. And it's, um, you know, do you have the advice around you that would be um, uh, helpful in this situation? So, you know, doing campaigns and political campaigns is all, uh, you know, fine and dandy. But you've got a really serious... Um, you've got a real serious gap in terms of people's understanding of how you do the governing part of this. Um, and that's, that's you know, there's no expectation there, but, you know, a lot of the kind of skills and a lot of the institutional experience has gone. And that's for various reasons. I mean, there's churn, there's natural churn in government as well. So I think it's more of a victim of that as opposed to kind of, you know, a split in policymaking, because there, there are decisions and, you know, even though you can't... Um, even though it's not clear kind of like which side the government has come down on and i have sympathy for that you know is it the economic question or is it the public health question um being able to communicate particular elements of the things that you're worried about so like the rule of six for example um that could have been i think technically better executed and i think that that's probably more of an issue at this point yeah fair enough and uh, and this concession to tory rebels they seem happy now the brady bunch but is that likely to continue, do you think? <laughs> do they call themselves the Brady Bunch? <laughs> the, well, whoever calls them it, then that's what they call them now, I think. Um, look, I think once they, I, th I think once the centre gets a bit more of a grip of what's going on, I think it will allay some concerns. I think this is a natural reaction for, for people feeling like they're confused um, and wanting to control the situation somehow and exert some um, some force from Parliament. And I also don't think it's the worst thing for the centre to try and um, try and share some of that responsibility, because it's not necessary that the executive itself has all the right answers in terms of, you know, having the moral authority to be able to institute lockdowns and being able to share that with Parliament and create a bit more of a consensus that ropes in the opposition parties to puts them on the spot to make a decision. I don't think that's the worst thing in the world. I think that's I think there's a really important point there about the about the um, the extent to which 
the government the a government led by Boris Johnson will be listened to everyone. You know, there was a moment where politics just went out of the window, especially around the time when the prime minister was ill himself. But that can't last forever. In other countries, they've tried to form in Australia, they have a national cabinet with the premiers of the states, many of whom are Labour, uh, meeting weekly to discuss things. It's, there's There's been um, some tension still, but it has allowed the political sort of governing class to speak with one voice. I don't think that's happened sufficiently with the devolved administrations, but it, it really hasn't happened at all with the with the mayors. Andy Burnham could be a, a really powerful communicator for a policy if he's brought in, consulted and uh, is signed up to it. Local authorities have, have really been cut out uh, at many of the stages along the way, and that's lost communicators, but it's also lost local expertise. So I think the government would do well to you know, move past that immediate emergency command and control instinct and start to think about how it brings people together across party lines, both for better governing, but also better communications. But Ma Matthew, can I just challenge that point slightly which is i i totally agree with the theory of it but practically do you think that the political agenda will allow for that kind of national unity in this space because you know does keir starmer want to be attached to executive decisions and supporting a certain executive decisions if it's not um politically expedient you know do you think nicola sturgeon with the smp wants to throw their loss in with with Boris Johnson, who is kind of um, a big symbol um, for their need to uh, depart from the union. Um, I mean, I kind of feel that even if the government reached out across those lines, it's not necessary that the olive branch is going to be accepted. I'm shocked that you think that politics will continue to happen. Uh, but no, I mean, you, there, there are obviously always going to be those tensions. And I think maybe maybe you're right, the moment has passed. But um, I, I do think that, you know, people like Andy Burnham, uh, uh, Nicola Sturgeon, um, uh, you know, the other devolved administrations, they aren't going to sign up to defend and promote policies they don't agree with. It has to be part of uh, a structured discussion in which they are involved in the decision making. Um, but I think there was a there definitely was a point, maybe it has passed, where that could have happened and people wanted to pull together. You know, I think ultimately most politicians, while continuing to have their own selfish interests, do actually care about uh, effective responses to something as serious as this and so there, i think there was a possibility maybe it's passed but if it has passed it's passed because of a failure to reach out uh, in the past and to um and to politicize it in the way that the government has done a few times i just want to finally on this just to chuck something out the government has kind of slowly and finally managed to set out its kind of broad strategy that's governing its approach to coronavirus now which is to suppress the virus until there's a vaccine is that risky in, in terms of it, what happens if a vaccine's delayed or what happens if the vaccine doesn't work? Well, and also what happens when you need to operationalise the distribution of the vaccine? So, you know, how, how are you going to be able to manufacture it? Do you know that there's going to be enough? Like, those are all really big questions. And I think the risk here is uh, economic. You know, we can't just go into, you know, this idea of a circuit breaker is great if you, you absolutely definitively know that there's going to be a time period at which you're going to be released and it's going to be safe, because then it also creates that, that impact on the economy, which is people just choose not to go out. Um, and that also creates, uh, you know, um, a slowdown. 
So I, I think I understand why that strategy is there. I understand that, you know, you, you cannot be in a position where you're going against your, your medical and scientific advice. I think it will be utterly cataclysmic for the economy. Um, and I think that is really going to hurt um, politically, um, you know, in 18 months time, if not sooner. Yeah, interesting. Well, big news from Brussels today where the EU has announced it's going to take legal action against the UK for its law-breaking Brexit plans to potentially renege on already agreed commitments on Northern Ireland. Ursula von der Leyen's statement stood in sharp contrast to government briefing last week that a Brexit deal was now in sight. In any case, David Frost and Michel Barnier have been locked in crunch talks this week with just two weeks to go to Boris Johnson's deadline to reach a deal. Irish Foreign Affairs Minister Simon Coveney summed up the situation this morning. Let's listen. So there are two negotiations in parallel. One is to implement what's already been agreed, which, of course, the, the British government is now threatening to legislate against. Uh, and then secondly, there is a future relationship agreement, uh, the most important part of which is a trade agreement that would avoid tariffs and quotas being Im uh, impacting on trade between the EU and the UK. Uh, and I think there is a good chance we can get agreements on both of those things before the end of the year. Uh, but certainly the, the tactics of the British government uh, in terms of introducing legislation to effectively break the international treaty that they signed up to less than 12 months ago has added uh, a really unnecessary uh, uh, tension to mm -hmm. these negotiations. And what was already a complex task has become even more difficult. Matthew, what do you make of the latest on Brexit? There's, there's some kind of chat about the row over Northern Ireland potentially being a bit of a smokescreen while concessions are being made behind the scenes and the deals on the cards. Is it is it all part of a cunning plan? Uh, I, I mean, it, it, to me, it just feels like such a long time ago that we were told that Brexit was finally done. So um, <laughs> the fact that we're back here again, um, you know, I, I think there is a lot of um, uh, cunning thinking going on uh you know but we need to separate out i think the politics from the from the governing or negotiating on one hand i think this fight gives the conservatives a campaign playbook they know really well and has proven to be a big success you know there's ads running now accusing labor mps of siding with the eu over the issue which has a very sort of um you know the state it's me feel to it um uh, but it works with a big slice of the electorate. And so it's, I understand what they're doing it. But the question is how long that works for. You know, ultimately, clever politics can only get you so far and the best political outcomes from the best comes from the best kind of governing outcomes. So, I, I, you know, to me, this whole move is starting to feel like an attempt to lower expectations so that um, whatever whatever deal comes back, as long as it's something better than gridlock and food shortages, that is somehow a triumph. But the gov the government does, you know, is 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 hardly lining itself up to um, allow for a smooth twenty twenty one. That's that's the, I think that's the thing is like it has a very much a feel of can we get through this bit of the negotiation? Then we, can we get through that bit of the negotiation? But it does seem to me that they're storing up uh, problems for the for the medium and long term. Yeah, actually, Rachel, on that, in terms of storing up problems, has winning the red wall made it more imperative to Boris Johnson to get a deal and also a good deal rather than uh, trying to make a bad deal look good? Um, well, sort of, yeah. um, well, I think it was sort of it's very well known that a lot of the, the red wall is very, very supportive of Brexit. 
Um, but they, and they were extremely vocal about that before the election. But I think it would be sort of wrong to assume that post general election and amidst um, a pandemic in which the economy is all over the place, that they 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 continue to be back in the hardest of hard Brexits or um, or a no deal. I think we've seen some polling recently that said um, that that um, people from the Red Wall want the government to prioritise getting an EU deal even over a US-UK trade deal. And we had some um, figures from Make UK, sort of a group that represents manufacturing, saying that almost two thirds of exports from Wales, the North East and Yorkshire and Humber um, go to the EU. You know, there's a, there's a reason why Labour's kind of switched its line to, to, to Boris Johnson's get Brexit done, because they know that people from, from those seats want to see a Brexit deal get done. And yes, I think Boris Johnson has to be really careful not to sort of overestimate the the support for Brexit in the Red Wall, I think. Yeah, uh, Salma, this law-breaking stuff and the legal action from the EU, what do you make of it? And do you think actually the government messed up the comms on breaking the law? They seem to very deliberately want to make it clear with that Brandon Lewis statement, but then started rowing back on it fairly rapidly after that. Well, the first thing that I would note is um, having dealt with the EU Commission several times whilst I worked at the business department. I mean, God knows when these infraction proceedings are actually going to take place. So, <laughs> I mean, it's quite it's quite a nice idea, but the practicalities of it probably means that, you know, the infraction proceedings don't actually happen for another 25 years. Um, what do I think about the breaking the law? I think it is expectation management, definitely. I think one of the problems when um, Theresa May was prime minister was that there weren't enough um, good comms around expectation management. And I think this uh, administration has probably learned from that. Whether you get that right, whether your judgment is correct on how that's played out um, or how you think it's going to play out is a different matter. And I think um, they had probably underestimated the, the reaction to it. Um, but also, I mean, they're not an administration that tends to worry about what the commentariat is saying. And, you know, even if it's coming from the judiciary or, you know, anything that's institutional, um, it's not of a massive concern to them. What they are looking at is kind of like, what is the feeling on the ground? Because they feel very connected to, to that um, particular grouping. Um, so would they think that their comms have been bad on this? Probably not. I do think that it it creates a difficulty in terms of their relationship with the stakeholders that you know ultimately will be important to them in the short to medium term. So their backbenchers, um, the press, uh, institutions that they actually are going to depend on. So um, as far as the comms are concerned, no, I don't. I don't think it's kind of like ultimately bad for them. I think it. I think they succeeded in their expectation management, but it did come at a at a cost um, to, like I said, those those institutional players. Yeah, you know, the, the 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 problem with the madman theory of negotiating is you can end up looking a bit mad sometimes, um, and I think that that is a problem for stakeholders in the commentariat. But I do I do I think it's important that they. I don't think anyone in Downing Street will be worried about how this is playing politically. I think it goes down really well to be standing up, uh, and and both annoying and confronting confronting the EU, but also really winding up the liberal intelligentsia. There are a big slice of conservative voters who that will play really well with, 
Um, and I think it, it, it that kind of because it's such a, a strange feeling for some people in the sort of establishment to understand that, but it passes them by. I don't think the, the Downing Street will be at all worried about how this is playing on the ground. Yeah, uh, Matt, oh, go on, Rachel. I was just going to say, well, I think that's true. I think it's also true that it's kind of this. Oh, I am mad. Is getting a bit a bit old, <laughs> you know. It's kind of it feels like you know nothing is a surprise to people. So I, it's a kind of it's not a long term strategy, madman negotiating. Um, Matthew, I just wanted to ask you just to kind of rewind a couple of weeks. Um, Labour sent out. I mean, this is kind of parliamentary stuff, but it was at the height of the the row over law breaking, and it, it would have been on the six o'clock news and everything. Labour sent out Ed Miliband to uh, deliver the Commons, your old boss, to deliver the Commons uh, kind of opposition to this. And it, you know, it was one of those speeches that was lauded in Westminster, but how do you think it went, went down? Do you think the Tories would have been happy about that Ed Miliband speech? I don't know if you saw it. I did. I did. It, it, um, it, it was everywhere at the time, wasn't it? I mean, I think it was it, it, it was it was somewhat of an open goal, but um, you still got to put the ball in the back of the net. And, and Ed did that with a plum. I don't think the government will be too, too worried about it. I thought it was a good morale booster for Labour activists. I think it would have uh, gone down really well with the um, kind of Remainer slice of the electorate who are obviously feeling quite upset that the, the election's over and even Labour has now moved on to a kind of get Brexit done uh, deal. Uh, I think it was really good for Ed as well, just from a personal point of view. Uh, he's back in the shadow cabinet for the first time in a long time, first time since being leader. And I think it, it really underlined the value that he has to Keir and to the to the shadow cabinet. Um, but it was, I think it ultimately was one of those moments that had a, a lot of interest and a lot of importance in Westminster, but not a lot of it outside. Do you think Brexiteers might look at that and, and, and think, oh, it's him again, and he's getting very exercised about this, but actually, as you say, is he siding with the EU? <laughs> I, I don't think it would have got a ton of uh, attention outside the Westminster bubble uh, of people that are politically interested. Uh, I think that um, Labour has a reputation amongst uh, Brexit voters of not being on their side and it will take a really really long time to to turn that around not just a couple of um uh facebook ads uh, and so on so i don't think it will have that much of a, of a of a big impact i do think it was important in the westminster village for all of those reasons I, we shouldn't downplay that it's not an irrelevance but i don't think it will have much uh impact either way outside it does i have to say that it's always the hardest judgment isn't it it's kind of like you know when are you when are you trying to sort of break out of the westminster village and when are you trying to sort of contain it in the Westminster village? And actually, there are points where you just you, you can get the judgment totally wrong of like how something is going to play out, mostly negatively. I have to say, from my experience, like <laughs> you, do, you, you think, wow, wow, people really care about X issue or Y issue. But I think when you're in it and when you're advising, there is a tendency to get bogged down with whatever's sort of nearest to you and in front of you. So constantly having to go back and look at that polling and really understanding, you know, what's happening in the country is critical. And I think the one I, I will praise this government, they do they do have a real handle on that. They do make sure that they check in all the time to give themselves this perspective. Um, and I think that isn't always the case when you're when you're at the centre. 
Well, talking about issues that might play differently in Westminster and uh, in the wider public, we have to talk about the incredible news that Priti Patel considered sending asylum seekers to Ascension Island, just the 4,000 miles away in the South Atlantic. Uh, since that amazing revelation, there have been more leaks from inside the government about ideas to curb cross-channel migration. These have included shipping asylum seekers offshore variously to Morocco, Moldova, Papua New Guinea, decommissioned oil rigs and disused ferries. Officials even discussed building a wall of small boats in the channel or somehow creating waves to make it harder for dinghies to cross. But underlying the so-called blue sky thinking has been a confirmation that yes, the Home Secretary is considering copying or, or being inspired by Australia's controversial stop the boats policy by looking to process asylum seekers offshore. Um, let's just have a listen to Bella Sankey of the charity Detention Action, exploding the myth that channel asylum seekers are actually breaking the law by making those journeys. Sorry, I can't, I can't arrive in this country without a passport and I'm British. You, you could if you were claiming asylum, if you were claiming asylum. So that is actually a myth that's been... But uh, you so know under the Dublin Convention, country. although not international, the Dublin Convention says if you're coming from a safe country, you need to stay in that safe country and claim asylum. It doesn't. If... It does, that's actually wrong. In law, and I'm telling you this as, as someone with legal expertise, that's not what the Dublin Convention says. It says that states have the right to try and return somebody to a country they've passed through. There's no obligation on someone to claim asylum in any country other than a country where they feel safe. Everyone, first of all, whoever wants to come in, uh, what's everyone's favourite uh, mad home if office idea from this week? The waves. The, the, uh, <laughs> you know, I think I, 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 I hesitate to say that it's my favourite, but <laughs> given the obvious risk to life. But um, yeah, making waves to to deter the boats. Yeah. How would they, how were they supposed to make the waves? It, are well, they like big fans or something? Yeah. Or like yeah, it's like a wave machine. Those can be big fans. They just get some inspiration from Barnsley Metrodome. They get get them in as consultants. There's a wave machine there, by the way. Um, I thought the, I thought the, uh, the build, a, build a wall of boats and make France pay for it was, uh, was uh, you know, getting inspiration, not just from Australia, but from America as well. <laughs> uh, Sam, seriously, though, um, you were special really, really advisor... Really hard to pick. <laughs> no, seriously, though, you were special advisor to Sajid Javid when he was Home Secretary. Yes. Um, how do you grapple with this problem of asylum seekers making irregular journeys to the UK? And did you have similar blue sky thinking sessions? Um, no, in answer to your second question, we did not have similar blue sky thinking sessions to this. Perhaps we should have. Perhaps we would have been more successful had we. Um, so how do you grapple with this? So first of all, what is your motivation? Your motivation is that you do not want people to die making these dangerous crossings uh, in the channel, especially um, when uh, the circumstances are so variable. And you know that there are criminal gangs who are profiteering from um, basically selling people false promises. Um, so you want to deter people. You absolutely want to deter people. There is no question because it's about preserving life. How do you do that? Um, firstly, I mean, and this has been sort of exercised, I think even under Priti Patel, she gets, she comes in for a lot of flack, but she has followed a, a, a sort of a, a trend that all Home Secretaries do, which is working with uh, French counterparts 
uh, to think about how you're going to um, find and exploit these criminal gangs and prevent that, those crossings from happening in the first place. Secondly, um, deploying technology. So there is certainly um, more cameras in action, more drones in action, and then using um, cutters in the med. Um, but that also can act as a, as a magnet rather than a deterrent because people feel like they're going to be picked up. Um, but also, you know, considering some of the regulations that exist around this. I mean, part of the reason why I think there is definitely cause for people to be upset about rule breaking with the EU is that the Dublin regulations, which are supposed to govern um, um, uh, migrant um, settlement, um, actually has broken down slightly. So you're supposed to uh, appeal for um, asylum status in the first country, first safe country that you arrive in. And of course, for a lot of these people, um, you know, they would prefer to be in the UK rather than France. But that is a breakdown in the Dublin regulation. So that those attempted of crossings means that actually people aren't really policing that and enforcing that in member states. So you do need to um, work on sort of strengthening those those um, uh, those agreements. I know that's a really long-winded, boring way of telling you, you know, after the sort of the the laughter around some of these ideas. But you know, the reality is it's hard and it's complicated. And you not only have the issue of preserving life and the com complexities around the reasons, but then also biting at your heels are populists like Nigel Farage, who turn up at the coast at every opportunity. So it's not, I think it's, I, I, I do have a lot of sympathy for any Home Secretary that has to deal with this, who's trying to be mainstream, who's trying to think about how you um, work within the law, your own law, um, you know, through asylum applications and, and try and um, treat people with dignity whilst trying to deter them. Um, because you do have people who exploit this in the cruelest possible way. And it's very hard to tell people that actually you're doing this because you care. Yeah, and I'd ask you if you had similar blue sky thinking sessions and the answer was no, but was the idea of processing asylum seekers and their applications offshore ever? Because it has been an idea that's float, been floating around for a while. We know Australia does it. Yeah, possibly. I don't. I can't say that I ever saw anything like that, but that's not to say that it didn't exist at some point in the Home Office. I'd be lying if I said I knew the answer to that definitively, but I don't. I I never came across that policy. Fair enough. Uh, Rachel, there's an interesting subtext to this as well, which is, um, I mean, these leaks of these kind of blue sky thinking policy sessions, you know, uh, thick of it style, chucking a ball around. Uh, things these sorts of things don't normally get leaked so what why is this all come out now chucking chuck a wave machine around yeah, uh, <laughs> um, yeah I, I, well, I guess i guess you could it, some of it could be explainable um by you know um just there's this sort of ongoing civil war between um ministers and the civil servants and you know all of the things that Dominic Cummins wants to do with the civil service to reform it, Dominic Cummins and Michael Gove want to do with the civil service. Um, and we know that, that, that the Home Office had some particular problems with um, bullying allegations, in particular that Philip Rutnam, the, the head of that civil service, head of that department, um, uh, left and uh, is, is currently um, taking 
the Home Office to um, an employment tribunal. So it, it doesn't, all of these things don't add up to what, what would be a happy ship, you know, where, where they'll want to keep everything under wraps and do everything to keep the minister happy. Um, and so I think, you know, some of that unhappiness is coming out in the in the shape of leaking just about everything going yeah yeah i wonder if the pretty patel uh, the, the investigation into pretty patel's alleged bullying being published might help somewhat we have asked the lobby about this uh, every, have day. Asked the lobby every day for the past yeah. few months and we don't know where it is um matthew though what was interesting um yesterday when this story first broke was that yougov did a poll which showed that the majority of the public actually supported sending asylum seekers 4,000 miles away, uh, or not majority, but more supported it than didn't support it. Is this an, a difficult issue for Labour, uh, the idea of uh, processing it, not, not, not sending them 4,000 miles, but toughening up the, up the system and, and possibly processing asylum seekers offshore? Is it a bit of a sticky wicket? Yes. I mean, I, I sort of, um, your listeners can't uh, tell, but I pulled a face when you asked that question because like, it's the most difficult. It's the issue that Labour has where it's, its core principles, it's, its instinct of both its MPs and its activists is a long way away from a large slice, at least, of the electorate. And that's been a problem for the Labour Party for 50 years. I mean, you sort of Wilson uh, went through this um, uh, and, and ever since. You know, the Labour Party's, um, uh, no one joins the Labour Party feeling like they want to be uh, tough on asylum seekers. Uh, it's against the instincts of everyone I've ever dealt with in, in the Labour Party, many of whom, like myself, are, are driven by faith on this issue. It's, it's, it's very core to our identity of ourselves. And so, you know, Ed Miliband simply having a coffee mug that said, we'll have controls on immigration. No one actually disagrees with that as a statement, but it was the thing that people can point to as a, a kind of a betrayal of, of Labour principles. So it is incredibly tough for the Labour Party. And um, I don't know how Keir's going to deal with it. I, I've always taken the view that um, in, in politics, you can you kind of try and work out where the electorate is and you can try and work out a best communications uh, approach but ultimately people will see through spin if you're not communicating what you actually think and what you will actually do and so i think for the labor party um a little bit of honesty um even where that won't go with the grain of many of the people we want to vote for us is a better approach than seeking to try and kind of uh, bid our way to acceptability on this as a topic. There's, but there's, there is so much nuance, though, in the polling around immigration. And I think, you know, it's, it's kind of like getting to that thread about fairness. It's not just about, you know, numbers are difficult. So, you know, just doing it as a block number, so the net migration target for the Tories, you know, you, you were never going to meet it. But when you, when you humanise the story of refugees, actually you find that the, the British people are very pro supporting refugees for example so you so there is this nuance that you've got to that you've got to be aware of but also that that thread that runs through it is that it's just a question of fairness and i think you know like i say you know the farage sort of characters who are trying to you know capitalize um on this um they sort of magnify that issue and bring in lots of lots of other parts of it that are, that are totally unfair and sort of turn into that political football that then mainstream parties find difficult to deal with. 
I, I totally I totally agree with that and 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 you know add to that that um a lot of the discussion isn't off isn't always based in fact you know the number of asylum uh, applications is is down at the moment despite the high profile nature of the irregular crossings i think the challenge for labor is getting heard on some of those uh, points you know labor especially at election time has incredible difficulty uh getting um uh, a fair hearing on this issue in particular from much of the media uh, and the impact that the print media has on the BBC during election times is a really big factor in discussions about this topic within the Labour Party. You know, there's a discussion about the policy, there's a discussion about party management, and there's a discussion about media management. And media management is the thing that really looms over that discussion within the Labour Party based on really, really harsh and unpleasant experience. Yeah, interesting. I was, just on, say, I was just going to say, do either of you think that, that it's possible to satisfy voters on the issue of immigration? Because um, it certainly hasn't seemed like that for the last 10 years, you know. I, I think it's possible, but I think it's it's about having what, what Cameron started off saying, which is an honest conversation. And I think part of that honest conversation is not talking about immigration, because when you think about immigration numbers, you're talking about economic migration. I think the harder thing to tackle has always been social migration so that's kind of you know things like spousal visas and you know one of the things actually when i was in the communities department you know um when you think about the green paper that we did around integration actually that's that is more pertinent to kind of people's concerns and one of the things that struck me um and it's and and i think it's a core cause of, of one of the reasons why we sort of merge these two things together and conflate them integration versus immigration is that there is a first generation in every generation of certain ethnic um communities in the uk and that prevents kind of you know a, a mainstream integration which most people um then get upset about and i think it's about changing the parameters of that discussion but it's a hard thing to do and almost politically impossible for most people to want to talk about it and just to, can i just give a really a really quick very example quickly. very quickly um hope not hate which is my day job uh, did uh, a, an absolute ton of uh, a focus group uh, research on this and and dug into the policies of, of immigration some of the things that were being brought forward and one of the policies the government had proposed that was really unpopular was um uh, spousal uh, uh, visas because people really like to have families they want yes. individual people. They, they like to have families. They're in uh, kids are in schools, and they can get to know each other. And so, this policy, where the government was attempting to be quite hard, when it was talked through, people didn't like it. So there is a lot of nuance in this. And fairness is the thing that I think you know. To your point, Rachel, um, I think it is possible. It's just it's a very very hard discussion to have because of the media environment and the social media environment. Yeah, interesting. Well, we must move on. Salma, you're not escaping the quiz this time. Damn. Uh, it's time for the quiz. Uh, this is very hastily put together, so apologies if it's a bit weird. Um, but it's all about Pretty Patel. Uh, just shout the answer if you know it. Uh, question number one. In her early days in the Commons, one of Pretty Patel's jobs that she had prior to becoming an MP proved controversial. Why? Was she... Is, is this in relation to her working for uh, UKIP, was it? Or the referendum party? No. She did work for another political Outside party. politics. Outside uh, politics. Didn't, oh, wasn't she involved in, in consulting on NHS privatisation contracts? Uh, she might have been, but that's not... <laughs> 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 Bonus point. 
Pass, pass. Uh, she worked for the tobacco industry and then oh. subsequently voted for the smoking ban to be overturned and campaigned against flame packaging for cigarettes. Uh, I don't see why that's controversial. She's just libertarian. Yeah, well, it proved controversial. I'm not calling it controversial. <laughs> 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 uh, question two, uh, what term did Pretty Patel in 2018 say was patronising and insulting because she is British? I've no idea. No, I feel like it's on the. I feel like it's on the tip of my tongue, but I can't. I might be thinking about that Guardian cartoon rather than the term that was used. No, she doesn't like the term BME because she considers herself British first and foremost, finds the term patronising and insulting. Uh, question number three. As I said, this quiz is a bit obscure. Very hastily put together. Uh, <laughs> on her infamous holiday in 2017, uh, Patel tried to justify meeting senior Israeli government figures by saying that she had made a senior UK cabinet minister aware of her plans. But who was the minister? Would it have been the foreign secretary? It will have been the foreign secretary, which who was... at the time was. Boris Johnson. Yes, correct. Salma, you've won the quiz. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations. Oh my God, my day just got so much better. <laughs> Not the greatest quiz, I will admit. We'll be back. But I won it. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that has nothing, nothing to do with your victory, how bad the quiz was. Whatever the quality of the quiz. Um, you don't know how hard it is to come up with one every week. Uh, anyway, unfortunately, that's all we have time for. Thank you to my guests for joining me. And make sure you subscribe to Commons People on all the usual channels. And please be sure to leave a review. Please also check out Running Mate, our fantastic podcast on the US election, which is aimed at Brits. And get your daily dose of what's happening in Westminster by subscribing to the Warzone newsletter at bit.ly forward slash the hyphen war hyphen zone. Uh, we'll just leave you with Boris Johnson trying to grapple with his own coronavirus rules. On the rule of six, uh, outside the, the areas where, such as the northeast, where extra measures have been uh, been brought in, uh, it's six inside, six outside, and uh, in the in the northeast uh, or in other areas where uh, extra uh, tight measures have been brought in, you should follow the guidance of of, uh, of local authorities. Uh, uh, but uh, it's it's uh, it's six in 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 a home or six in in hospitality. But uh, as I understand it, not six outside. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 